Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, my name is Maria Patrico. I'm the criminal research investigator for the Major Crimes Bureau for the Collier County Sheriff's Office. Today I'm here to talk to you about our missing persons case for Ricky Walker. Ricky has been missing since June of 1993 from the East Naples area. A family member filed a missing persons report with the Collier County Sheriff's Office. Mr. Walker was last seen on June 18th of 1993 at a friend's home in the West Winds Mobile Home Park. Mr. Walker lived in Golden Gate Estates. He was a construction worker. He had two children and he drove a 1978 blue two-tone Oldsmobile Cutlass. His family said he always carried a Marlin rifle with a scope in a case in the backseat of his vehicle. Mr. Walker also carried a Remington pocket knife on him. Mr. Walker was visiting his friends in the evening of June 18th of 1993. At some point he left in his vehicle. Mr. Walker and his vehicle have not been seen since. The route that Mr. Walker would normally take home is bordered by canals. The Collier County Sheriff's Office air and grounding units searched the area with negative results. This missing person's case is still under investigation. If you have any information, please contact the Collier County Sheriff's Office at Paradise After Dark is a bi-weekly podcast covering true crime, unsolved mysteries, missing people, urban legends, and the dark side of the Sunshine State. First, if you would like to support our show, please subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Paradise After Dark podcast. On Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, our spinoff show, Vacation Edition, discounts on our merchandise, and more. If you have a question, a Florida case suggestion, or you'd just like to chat, please email us at paradiseafterdarkpodcast at gmail.com. And this month, we would like to give a shout out to our newest patron. Amanda, coming in at the Unsolved Mystery level. All right. That is awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for, your support. for your support. In other news. CrimeCon is still set for October 30th to November 1st in Orlando, Florida. So if you guys want to come see us there, we will be there. It's going to be a good time. And if you don't have your passes or tickets yet, you can call or go on the website and use our promo code. Our promo code is PARADISE20. 
Yeah, Paradise 20. And that gets will gets you 10% off. Yep, use that, and that'll get you 10% off through the gate. It's a lot of fun there, CrimeCon. Yep. I'm excited. So, anyway, Lauren, this week, um, this case here hits really close to home. It is close to home because it takes place in our neck of the woods. So, let's get started. We're going to talk about missing person, endangered missing Ricky Walker. So last month, on June 19th, two days before Father's Day, Kelly Walker Mathia made a heart-wrenching, tearful Facebook video. She told her audience about her father, Ricky Walker, and how much she loved him and missed him. She implored everyone to give their dads some extra love this Father's Day because you never know when they'll be gone for good. She begged for anyone with information about her father's whereabouts to come forward. She even named the people who were last seen with her father and asked them to finally tell the truth. June 19th was the 27th anniversary of the day Ricky Walker disappeared without a trace in Naples, Florida. According to the Charlie Project's website, Walker and his father were constructing a house off of Randall Boulevard in Naples, Florida in June of 1993. His family members invited him to a barbecue during the evening hours of June 19th. But Walker said that he had plans with his friends, John and Don Stacy. He planned to meet them near a mobile home park in West Winds Trailer Park along eastbound US-41 in Naples. Not at the trailer, but near the trailer. At this point in time, we don't know exactly where they were actually hanging out. I think it's important for our listeners that we paint a picture of the landscape and distance between Randall Boulevard and the West Winds Trailer Park in Collier County. It's a haul. In 1993, Randall Boulevard was the very outskirts of Naples, Florida, far, far east of what is considered the inhabited part of the city in an area known as Golden Gate Estates, although I'm not even sure that it had that name back then. It was considered no man's land, like the boonies, the sticks. Very few people lived in this area. Now, West Winds Trailer Park is located in East Naples, which is just that, the east part of Naples. At present day, Google Maps tells me that it's 26.3 miles and a 39-minute drive from Randall Boulevard to West Winds. But back in 1993, many of the major roadways that one would take were either dirt roads or didn't even exist at that time. Yeah, now they're four lanes, and now they're actually in some situations, some cases are six lanes. But right. back then, you were talking a two-lane road that was not improved. It was a Des- road. A desolate. Yeah, it was just a two-lane road that you would see on just some country country hike. And I don't think I would be too far off by saying that in 1993, it would have taken probably about an hour to travel this route. Assuming there's no traffic, yes. And this is important to remember. It's also important to remember that Golden Gate Estates was built on top of a swamp, essentially the west side of the Florida Everglades. Now, because of this, a large, long canal system had to be built to hold all the water. So canals line almost every street. Once you start to get in deep into the estates, there's just canals everywhere. Yep. Just keep the water all around us. Now, at the time of his disappearance, Ricky Walker was driving a light blue, kind of a bluish-gray 1979 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. The car had a Florida tag, LTK28Q, and was registered in Cross City, Dixie County, Florida. 
He had a rifle in his vehicle, and it was described as a 1989 Marlin 330 or 3030-336 CS with a serial number 12087456, a cross-groove barrel, a mounted scope, and a camouflage carrying case. This was purchased at Walmart in February of 1989. Now, Ricky Walker's car was in pretty poor condition. The vehicle has a spare tire in the trunk, and the names Ricky and Kelly are scratched into the passenger door or the dashboard. He was last seen wearing a dark-colored cap, similar to a baseball cap, a t-shirt, which was possibly dark blue, and was either plain or had the word Hobie printed on it. Size 34-32 blue jeans of an unknown but probably inexpensive brand, Fruit of the Loom underwear, size 9 white sneakers, and possibly a chain necklace. He has black hair, green eyes, and may have a mustache. He has a tattoo on his left shoulder of the name Ricky, with the C slightly tilted. The tattoo is in blue ink and was obviously not done professionally. His ribs were previously fractured. One of his pinky fingers was cut off and sewn back on, and he has scars on his back from being beaten with a chain. Walker is missing all of his front teeth. He may have RH negative blood. Walker smoked cigarettes at the time of his 1993 disappearance, and there were several conflicting statements about whether Ricky Walker had been inebriated that evening. His family told authorities that he was in good general health and not depressed at all around the time of his disappearance. So everything that Ken just told you is what you'll find with a simple Google search of Ricky Walker's name. His case is featured on the Charlie Project's website, the Doe Network, etc. But I have questions, and I'm a firm believer that the devil is always in the details. So thanks to the Collier County Sheriff's Office, we got all of the reports on this case, 74 pages of reports, which isn't really that much considering when we did Felipe Santos's case, there was over 400 pages well, for that it, case. It was a lot of pages. So it, it wasn't that much, but it was a lot more information than what you find with a simple Google search. And I think a lot of this information is important. Yeah. Well, I mean, most of this information is, is you know, it's basically like we say, it's public knowledge and it's all in the police reports. Yeah, it's all public record. So, and I've also been speaking with Ricky Walker's daughter, Kelly, who's provided me with some of her own memories and what the rest of her family remembers about what happened to Ricky. So Kelly told me, first of all, that yes, Ricky and his father were constructing a house on 8th Avenue, which is off of Randall Boulevard. And the two men were living in a trailer on the property while they built the house. And the Stacy brothers did not both live in West Wind's trailer park, as it is implied in the narrative above. Only Don Stacy lived in West Wind's trailer park, and John Stacy lived in a home off of Everglades Boulevard. According to Ricky Walker's daughter, Kelly, and also backed up by the official police reports, Ricky did not go to West Wind's trailer park that evening. He actually went to a party at John Stacy's house off Everglades Boulevard, at least at first. Now, through the police reports, I was able to determine that John Stacy lived on 28th Avenue Southeast off of Everglades Boulevard. And again, this is another area of Golden Gate Estates that was sparsely populated back in 1993. Pretty rare. So Randall Boulevard and Everglades Boulevard actually intersect with one another. But Everglades Boulevard is a long road, about 15 miles running north to south. According to Google Maps, 
Today, the route from John Stacy's Street to Westwinds Trailer Park is 27.7 miles and would take 41 minutes. But according to Geraldine Walker, Ricky's sister, the route Ricky would have taken would have taken him the opposite direction of what Google tells me now. He would have gone south on Everglades Boulevard, crossed over I-75, or as we call it, Alligator Alley, and went through the, quote, south blocks, south Golden Gate blocks, and the Picayune State Forest. You know, Ken, can you describe the south Golden Gate blocks and what they were like in 1993? Uh, Yeah, well, first let's give you an idea of what Lauren's talking about, because when people... When you say 27.7 miles and it takes 41 minutes, let, let's go back to 1993 like we spoke about before. If When you live out in this area that they're talking about here off Everglades Boulevard, there's, there's, it's not like we're, you're in a city where there's four or five different directions you can go to get to these places. You have to go one direction. And at the end of every street, like Lauren said earlier, are canals. So off Everglades Boulevard... No matter which direction you go, every road, because if you travel down Everglades Boulevard, you can go left or the right. Each one of those roads dead ends into a canal. So if you go down one of those roads, you can't take this road to that road to this road to that road like you would in a normal city block because you're out of what they call the estates. So keep that in mind because you can't just, like I said, if you make a left-hand turn, you have to get a pull into somebody's driveway to turn around. There's no U-turns or connected roads. But the area she's talking about here is very grid-like. So everything's laid out in a grid. And again, the same scenario. When you go to the end of one of these roads, you hit a canal because those are all dug. And I think we spoke about how this was all put together originally in in um, uh, Squally's episodes. We talked about the Golden Gate Estates and yes. the Gulf yes, American Land did. Corporation. They yeah. were originally actually were trying to build something. So uh, – this is just a very desolate area. And in 1983, if you crossed over Alligator Alley or I-75 and you got out there, you didn't see a car. You didn't hear a noise. You might see the occasional airplane fly over. This was very, very desolate. Mm-hmm. Very quiet. It was The roads were not improved. I mean, we say roads. Again, these were more like trails. So the roads had been put together once, but in all the years they back were back in the '60s. Yeah, and they, they were have never been beat maintained. up, broken. Um, guys got out there in four-wheel drive trucks. We used to go out there and uh, shoot. It's just an area that was basically and no I, man's land, like Lauren said earlier. And I've actually are uh, gone on Google Maps, and I've taken some screenshots that I'm going to post on our social media. So people who listen to this episode can, can see like a satellite view of what this area, I think you really need to see it, what, see what we're talking about. So like we said, Ricky would have gone south on Everglades, crossed over Alligator Alley and went through the South Blocks and the Picayune State Forest. He then would have come out on a gravel access road, probably Miller Boulevard, I'm assuming to US-41 and traveled west to Westwinds Trailer Park. The route would have taken him into some very sparse and remote areas. Like Lauren said earlier, if the car is running a little weird or something's funny, and if you're in a car in 1983, you're most likely not going to go down this path. Uh, Miller Boulevard is made for guys. If you if you don't have a four-wheel drive vehicle, you don't go on Miller Boulevard. You don't do it today, and you damn sure didn't do it back in 1993. Um, this is not exactly the type of road that you would take. So that's where I get confused on this because it doesn't seem like that would be a smart move. Yeah. And it 
this this is just a puzzling piece. Exactly. Because why would he go that way? It makes no sense to go that way. It's dangerous to go that way. It's dangerous in the daylight. And he's supposedly been drinking. Well, we'll get a, we'll get into more of that. But we just wanted to lay, lay out that out the groundwork, so to speak. Right. Now, Ricky's friend Don Stacy was interviewed by investigators on July twenty third, nineteen ninety three. This was four days after Ricky was last seen. He stated that he was at his brother John's house out off Everglades Boulevard, and they were working on some ATVs. Ricky arrived at John's residence and was drinking. And when it came time to leave at about 11 p.m., Don drove Ricky's car to his trailer at West Winds. And Don Stacy mentioned that the car was not running well and he could, quote, barely keep it running. And just keep in mind this detail that he, Don was having trouble keeping the car running. He stated that a 30-30 rifle in a camo carrying case was in the back seat of the car. Upon arriving at his home in West Winds, Ricky had passed out in the passenger seat. And Don Stacy told investigators that he threw the car keys underneath the driver's seat to keep Ricky from driving off. Obviously, being that he was intoxicated, didn't want him taken off, and he left Ricky inside the car. And Don went inside. And a short time later, Ricky entered the home and passed out on the couch. Don Stacy went to bed in the bedroom, and when he woke up the next morning, both Ricky and his vehicle were gone. So Callie, Ricky's daughter, told me that the Stacy brothers gave two different accounts about what happened that night. The first one was basically what Ken just said. When the party was over, Ricky was too drunk to drive, and Don drove him home to his trailer at West Winds Trailer Park. Ricky was passed out in the back seat, so Don threw the keys under the seat and went up, went into the house to go to bed. When he woke up, Ricky was gone. Now, two, the second story was that Ricky drove himself to Don's house and slept there on the couch. But it doesn't appear as if Ricky drove his own car that evening because Don mentioned that the car wasn't running right, like it was running out of gas. Well, apparently, there was some kind of switch in the car that needed to be turned on to make the car run correctly. But Don didn't know about that. So Don must have been driving the car to to know that the car wouldn't run right without flipping the switch. And Ricky must have been really drunk or completely out of it, or maybe even not in the vehicle, because... Ricky could have just simply told Don, hey, flip the switch, and the car would, would run. Would make sense. So there's some reason why Ricky didn't tell Don, allowed Don to drive the car, but didn't mention flipping this switch. And I don't exactly know what kind of switch that would be. I'm assuming it's something in an older model car. Well, I had an 85 S10 pickup truck, and... Uh, I had rigged up a little switch in there and what it did is it would actually kill the ignition. So if you had to reach up under the dash and flip the switch and the reason was, is because that truck would start without a key. Oh. So my ignition was busted. So what I did is I put a kill switch up underneath the steering column. So you flip that switch and it would fire up. And I know in a lot of cases, some people have, um, like coil wires and stuff, things like that. They would do with older vehicles. You could tamper with them to make them, um, Basically, like a security system, you didn't want somebody to steal them. With my my old S10, I did that, 
I just cut the ignition wire and I put a switch in place. So you had to flip the switch to make it run. And I'm wondering if that is what this here is, is maybe something like that. Maybe. Or it killed the, you know, killed some of the cylinders. I don't know. Guys, it, with the older cars, you could get away with some of that stuff. And nowadays it's, it's a little different animal. But it's possible in a 1979 Olds to tamper with a lot of that stuff. Investigators appear to take Ricky's disappearance very seriously, calling it suspicious early on in the investigation. Aside from Ricky's family driving his usual route to and from West Winds looking for Ricky in his car, Sergeant Barry Day and Detective Beth Brown drove the route looking as well, but there was no trace of Ricky or his car. On June 22nd, the National Park Service performed an aerial search in a Park Service helicopter. They searched from Randall Boulevard all the way south to US-41, and the search revealed four waterbound vehicles, none of which belonged to Ricky Walker. We don't know what the other cars were as well. They also checked other areas of the Picayune State Park with negative results. And they did another aerial search in August of that same year, 1993. And again, they didn't find anything. Now, around that same time, David Walker, Ricky Walker's brother, was working at the jail in Collier County and was speaking to an inmate named Leroy. So Leroy advised him that in June of that year, the same month that Ricky disappeared, he was hanging out with a group of Hispanic men on Antenna Road in an area called Naples Manor in East Naples, not far from Don Stacy's home. So Leroy says a white man matching Ricky's description approached the group looking to buy some marijuana. He had no money but was asking to trade a rifle, a thirty thirty rifle, the same type that Ricky was known to have in his vehicle the night that he vanished. So apparently this group of men beat him up, and that's all Leroy told Walker in this particular report. On September 21st, 1993, Detective Beth Brown went to the jail to speak to Leroy. Leroy told Detective Brown that while that a white male driving a bluish-grayish older model vehicle approached him and his gang looking to buy some marijuana from a man in his group named Gatto. I'm not using I'm not using last names here. Well, it's because there's no 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 charges, no arrests, right? Nothing, so. so I'm not going to be using last names. But this man named Gatto, the man couldn't pay for the marijuana, so he produced a thirty thirty rifle and offered it in exchange for the weed. The group became disturbed when the white man brought out the rifle and began to beat him. Leroy said that he became scared when it looked like the gang was seriously hurting the white man, so he took off. He also advised Detective Brown that Gatto owned a junkyard and the vehicle that the white man was driving could possibly be hidden there. This junkyard was checked and Ricky Walker's car was not found there. Yeah, it would be tough at a junkyard. I mean, depending on the size of the junkyard to find a car, because I got to believe, I mean, I guess what you're looking for, but I got to believe that in 1983, there was probably quite a few 79 Cutlass Oldsmobiles, because this right. wasn't like a desired car. It wasn't like a Cutlass Olds 442. I mean, it was just a regular basic sedan. Mm-hmm. So, well, in February of 1994, investigators received some new information from an inmate at the jail named James. James told them that he was in the day room of a cell block watching TV when a Crime Stoppers program featuring Ricky Walker's disappearance came on. Another inmate sitting in the room stated that he, quote, could have prevented that, referring to Ricky Walker's disappearance. The inmate went on to explain that he saw Ricky at a convenience store located on South Tamiami Trail 
in East Naples and that Ricky had been, quote, beat to shit and that they had put their dogs on him. He stated that Ricky had attempted to trade a gun for marijuana. While the inmate was making these statements, another inmate chimed in and told him that, quote, they would kill him if he kept talking about the subject. Later, James revealed to investigators that the guy in the TV room who was making these statements was Leroy. The same man who had spoken to David Walker and then to Detective Brown. Yes. So while investigators continued to interview James, he revealed that he had seen Ricky on the day of his disappearance. He stated that at approximately 3.30 or 4 p.m. at Don Stacy's house, he saw Ricky and Ricky did not appear to be intoxicated. He said Ricky pulled out his 30-30 rifle and asked one of the Stacy brothers to put the rifle in the house to hold it for him. So if the rifle was being held at the Stacy's house, how could he have tried to trade it for marijuana later that night? Yeah. Devil's in the details here. Exactly. Well, in March of 1994, another inmate came forward with possible information about Ricky's disappearance. This inmate, Enrique, told investigators that Ricky had been killed in February of 1994, which, of course, was wrong, 1993. He couldn't give investigators a physical description of Ricky, but said that he was driving a red car. Wrong again. He stated that Ricky was shot and killed and that his car was in the swamp in the Everglades. He then stated he would help investigators with more information if they could let him out of jail. Then he refused to give any more information. So he was just looking for basically just obviously this is just all bullshit. And this guy just wanted to get a deal so he can get himself out of jail. Again, in August of 1994, another inmate came forward and said he had information about this case. His name was David. He stated that Ricky Walker had been killed by Jaime but would not elaborate on where the body was or any further information unless he was released from jail. However, apparently David was the third person to tell investigators that Ricky had been murdered by a man named Jaime. In January of 1995, another inmate named Melissa requested to speak to investigators about the case. Melissa told them that she had seen Ricky Walker the night he disappeared. First, she said she had seen him in Naples Manor, then again, later, at a man named Richard's house. There, he was standing outside of his car and offering to trade some stuff he had for some drugs. He did not have any money, and the stuff she was talking about included a rifle. She also stated he was very intoxicated. She stated that she was inside the house and heard two gunshots. Outside, she saw there were approximately five Hispanic males standing around Walker. Walker had supposedly shot one of the men... So the group beat him and slashed his throat. They also apparently cut off one of Ricky's fingers. Melissa then told investigators that there was probably not a, quote, whole body to be found, but couldn't give them any idea of where the body or the body parts might be hidden. So what we just told you was one theory about what may have happened to Ricky Walker. He may have been the victim of a drug deal gone bad involving a Mexican gang and his body may have been dismembered and buried somewhere in the Everglades. But there's a couple other theories that we can't skip over. Well, first on this one, this is the one that kind of intrigued me. Now, we mentioned earlier that Ricky had his pinky was cut off and sewn back on. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious of how, number one, how that happened. And two, was this something that maybe she saw... You know, like 
previously. Maybe his throat wasn't cut, but maybe they did cut his finger off. Maybe maybe he was involved with these people earlier. And if not, if she's not making this up, who was it that she saw get murdered? So there's like so much stuff coming from this statement, you know. It's right. like if it wasn't Ricky, who was it? But Ricky, we talked about having his, his obviously it couldn't have been him at this point because the day he went missing, his pinky had been sewn back on. Well, maybe they cut another finger off. Exactly. Well, I'm thinking, well, maybe that maybe it was him from a previous time. Maybe his throat wasn't cut, but his pinky was cut off. And so that's where I, I, I was like, well, this one I kind of leaned into, but then I sort of backed off. Well, it's hard with this, with this because it seems like some of the people coming forward with this information are wanting reduced, they're already in jail and they're wanting a deal. They're wanting to get out of jail or reduction in charges or something. Well, one of the things that it's hard to believe somebody with ulterior motives, they could be making things up. Yeah. And well, and anybody that's in jail will do whatever they can to get out of jail. Right. We've seen that and we've, we've done cases on that, but I just, I found this really intriguing because obviously maybe they, maybe she knew that he had lost his pinky so I'm curious if some of these people knew Ricky Walker, you know, basically in a different format. Maybe they knew they knew him, not just knew of him. Right. So I, I have to find that maybe they're friends because in 1983, Naples was still still pretty small. I mean, we've done some cases. I mean, it was still it wasn't exploded like it's it is now. It's not like it is now. And one thing to keep in mind, too, during this case is it you've got. When you're talking about Golden Gate or Golden Gate Estates, that's a whole different community than Naples. Right. When you get into Naples, so the eat now North Naples, Naples Park, Naples, that's a whole different area than you. I mean, it's kind of like Chicago. There's different sections of Chicago. There's different sections of uh, New York City. Right. Different boroughs, if you will. And Naples is kind of built the same way because Golden Gate Estates and Golden Gate City where the working class people, everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. You get into Naples and that's where your tourists, your, you know, people that have summer homes and things. So we're talking about a lot of people who know each other. So that's why when I was reading this particular police report, it was, it just caught me off guard because she knew about the missing finger. And I'm like, well, obviously it couldn't have been cut off that day because he was missing and we know that it was sewn back on. So that's what at first it caught my, caught me off guard. But mm-hmm. now like Lauren talked about earlier, we don't want to skip over these other theories. And this particular theory here in October of 1994, Arnold Walker, which is Ricky's father, he reached out to Sergeant Jackie Klein and advised her that Ricky's ex-wife, Brandy Walker had stated that she was going to get rid of or have someone else get rid of Ricky. Later that same date, Sergeant Klein received a call from a woman named Deborah, and she was living in Fort Fort Myers, and she advised that two or three months before Ricky's disappearance, Brandy Walker told her husband, Robert, that she was going to get rid of Ricky so she could have custody of the children. Now, Brandy is Ricky's ex-wife? Ex-wife, yes. Okay. And? Kelly's mother. Yes. Biological mother, yeah. Yes. Now, going back to the interview with James... He is the inmate who had overheard Leroy in the day room of the jail that stated that Ricky had been murdered by the Mexican gang, but also that he had seen Ricky that day and witnessed him ask the Stacy brothers to hold the rifle for him. James also stated in that same interview that the only person he knew of that would have a problem or a grudge against Ricky was his ex-wife's new husband, David, who James heard was after Ricky. 
because Ricky had gotten custody of their children. Now, moving forward to July of 2008, Kelly Mathia again advised investigators that her biological mother, Brandy, now going by the name Brandy Hall, probably had information about her father's disappearance. At the time, authorities were unable to locate her, and there's no more mention of her in any of the police reports. So in September of that year, Ricky's brother David called the authorities to report that he had heard that Don Stacy asked a man named Lonnie if he could crush a car without a title. Lonnie apparently told Stacy he could take care of it. Now, Detective Beth Brown stated in her report that she was concerned that Ricky Walker's car had been destroyed. But we don't currently know where David Walker got this information. It should be noted that David was a corrections officer that worked at the Collier County Jail and wonder if it could have come from an inmate. Yeah, possibly. So let's take a deep dive into the Stacy brothers, John and Don. So Don Stacy was supposedly the last person to see Ricky Walker that night. In October of 1993, detectives attempted to polygraph the Stacy brothers and their wives. Shirley Stacy was the only one willing to take a polygraph, which she passed. She passed. She passed, yes. But it appears as if John and Don Stacy had never agreed upon a date for the test and never ended up being polygraphed. Doesn't mean they're guilty. No, it doesn't, but they were never polygraphed. In all the police reports that we received from the Collier County Sheriff's Office, it doesn't appear as if Don was ever questioned again by investigators about Ricky's disappearance until August of 2004. Whoa. The report states that Corporal G.T. Martin was assigned to follow up with Don Stacy. So Corporal Martin had a hard time finding Don and then finally got him on the phone after several attempts. Don Stacy stated that he had no new information about Ricky Walker, but in this version, his story had changed just a bit. He said that Ricky did start driving from John Stacy's house, but he was drunk and all over the road, so they switched seats. Again, he said that he threw the keys under the driver's seat once they reached his home in West Winds Trailer Park, and they went inside, Ricky falling asleep on the couch and gone when Don woke up. And this does coincide with what Kelly told us, as we mentioned earlier, that there were two different stories about who drove. Not a big inconsistency, but an inconsistency nonetheless. Well, where this would where this would play in is if if Ricky started off driving, that switch we spoke about earlier would have been switched. Right. So the car would have been running normally. That's a good point that I didn't even think of. So there would be no problem because, like I said, in my vehicle, I would have started the truck because you flip the switch, turn the key. Right. Uh, Ricky would have had the car running correctly because the switch would have already been flipped. Therefore, it may not have been running incorrectly. Hmm, that's so a really good point. Something to consider on that. If you if you're going to change the story a little bit, it's got to coincide with everything that takes place. Like you said, devils in the details. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into a private investigator because on February 26 of 2009, private investigator John Heisler advised the Major Crimes Bureau, Lieutenant Fox, that his client Wayne Smith had information about Ricky Walker's case. Smith advised that his former wife, Fatima, told him that her ex-boyfriend, Don Stacy, admitted to her that he murdered Ricky Walker. 
Fatima was interviewed a few days later and she denied this claim. She did state that she was present on the night that Ricky disappeared and was living with Don Stacy at his trailer park in West Winds. Now, she stated that when they got back to the trailer, they were both very drunk and Don hid his keys under the driver's seat, as we spoke about earlier, to prevent him from driving off. Ricky wanted to leave, so he went back out to his car and when he couldn't find the keys, he started honking the horn. When Don went outside to deal with Ricky, Fatima began to put his clothes and his fishing equipment on the front porch. She said she was tired of all the drinking and fighting and wanted them both to leave. When Ricky calmed down, they all came inside and Fatima and Don went to sleep in the bedroom and Ricky slept on the couch. When she woke up the next morning, Ricky and his car were gone. She again stated that Don never told her he did anything to harm Ricky and she never told Wayne anything of that nature. So she's denying what was being said by Wayne. Right. And obviously, and her story does coincide with Don, except she elaborates a little bit more details. Right. So keep that in mind. I mean, it's just different perspectives. So we're going to take a sharp turn here. In May of last year, we released an episode on this podcast called The Fort Myers 8. On March 23rd of 2007, eight human skeletons were found in a rural area of Fort Myers, Florida, which is about 30 miles north of Naples. For the next week, officers from several other departments helped the Fort Myers police with the meticulous search of the area. They used screens to sift through the dirt, set up grids, and brought in cadaver dogs to help find all the remains. Forensic anthropologist Heather Walsh Haney from Florida Gulf Coast University was brought in to map out the scene and to predict and to predict where bones may have been carried away by groundwater and animals. In previous years, Walsh Haney had helped identify the victims of the 9-11 World Trade Center attack, the Value Jet airplane crash, and Hurricane Katrina. And we also covered the Value Jet crash in our episode titled Swamp Bodies, if anybody wants more info on that. It's like all these little things are connected, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Heather Walsh Haney stated that she believed that they had found about 90% of each skeleton. Crime scene technicians had hoped the dirt underneath the remains might have revealed spent bullets or ligature remains if the bodies had been homicide victims, but that didn't happen. Police described their efforts as the largest excavation of human skeletal remains in Florida history. After combing through the scene and working inside the Lee County Medical Examiner's Office, Experts were able to determine that all of the victims were white males, perhaps some of them Hispanic. Their ages ranged from 18 to 49, and it was estimated that they had been placed in the woods between the years 1980 and 2000. Now, if you're going to go back and listen to the episode, there was the possibility that skeletons, uh, the skeletons that were found, were victims of a suspected serial killer, Daniel Conahan. Daniel Owen Conahan Jr. was convicted of one murder, but has been linked to over a dozen, mostly of homosexual men in Charlotte County, Florida area, and what was later to come known as the Hog Trail Murders. The murder of one of Conahan's victims, Richard Montgomery, was so so nasty that the trial was described as not for the squeamish. Conahan was accused of luring his victims into the woods, and he allegedly told Montgomery that he would pay him for nude bondage photos. 
And so Montgomery agreed. And Conahan was convicted of raping Montgomery, strangling him, and then removing the young man's genitals to prevent a DNA trace. And he. And that's when you started calling him the, the pickle poacher. He coined the name from me as the pickle poacher. So not to make light of the situation, but I had, during that case, I had to. So in June of 2008, Kelly, Ricky's daughter, contacted investigators about the, about the possibility that her father may be one of the Fort Myers eight. Ricky's dental records were obtained to try and compare to the remains found in Fort Myers, and Kelly also gave DNA. And for some reason, those results have not come back yet, according to Kelly. Okay, so, so that's kind of where we are now. That's 12 years ago, and they still, she hasn't gotten any results back yet. So, Well, sometimes this testing takes a little time, Laura. Apparently so. So yes, it depends on what lab you're using. So that's where we're going to leave off for right now for part one, in case you guys haven't figured out yet that there's two parts to this episode. You will. If you want both parts right away, join Patreon. So we will be back tomorrow for part two. We also have an interview with Kelly, Ricky Walker's daughter. And if anyone has any information about Ricky Walker's whereabouts, please contact the Collier County Sheriff's Office at area code 239-252-9300. So I guess, all right, everyone, that's going to be it for tonight. Yep. Join us tomorrow for part two. And again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash paradise after dark podcast. You know, when I was a kid, it used to drive me nuts. To have those to be continued things show up on my favorite show. Because you'd wait all you'd wait a whole week to watch it and then it would come up and say to be continued. You're like, oh hell no. <laughs> <sighs> well anyway, in the meantime, you can check out our Etsy store for some awesome Paradise After Dark gear. Please make sure to follow us on all of the social medias. Medias. At Paradise After Dark Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Paradise Dark239 on Twitter. You can also email us at paradiseafterdarkpodcast at gmail.com. And please make sure to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening and rate and review. This really helps us branch out and reach a wider audience. And thank you everyone for listening to Paradise After Dark. Dark, dark, dark.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.